How do you know when God is at work? What does it look like when God is working? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? Is it when things are going really well? You think, wow, God is clearly at work in that situation. Is it when there's that glimmer of hope? Whoa, God must be up to something. What makes you say, wow, I can see God's hand at work? Or consider this. Who is it that you think is most likely to be used by God to do great things? Who is God most likely to hand-select to accomplish His purposes? What makes you say when you look at that person, wow, God has His hand on that person? Is it people who are really outspoken about their faith? People who are really talented and gifted? Is it those who are really committed to lives of holiness and piety? Is it it those who are so faithful to the gospel, they're willing to give up anything for the name of Christ? Who is it that makes you say, man, God has his hand on that person. God is using that person. Well, the book of Esther challenges our expectations of how God works. At no point in the book of Esther are we ever told about God speaking to anyone. Nowhere in the story of Esther are there supernatural interventions or miraculous events. God is never even mentioned in the book of Esther. The author never tells us anything about what God is doing. He never tells us what God is thinking. No one in the story talks about God. The law of God is only barely referred to. And yet, Esther is the story of an amazing God who preserved his people and delivered them from the threat of total annihilation. The book of Esther is the story of how God preserved his people through his providence. His providence The Heidelberg Catechism defines the providence of God this way, and it'll be on the screen. The providence of God is the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass... Rain and drought, 
fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. When we talk about God's providence, what we mean is that God's hand governs every detail of His creation. Nothing happens by chance. Even seemingly ordinary and natural events come about by His fatherly hand. And the story of Esther is a story of God's providence demonstrated in seemingly ordinary events. On the surface, what happens in the book of Esther is people just living normal human lives. On the surface, the characters in the story mostly just, frankly, live for their own self-interest. Some are outright evil in their actions and intentions. Yet, under the surface, behind the scenes, God providentially weaves all of these seemingly ordinary events together in order to accomplish His sovereign purposes to preserve His people and keep His promises. Our text today is Esther chapters 1 and 2. The main plot of the book really begins in chapter 3. Chapters 1 and 2 are the setup for what happens in the rest of the story. And I've titled this sermon, God in the Dark. God in the Dark. Because if I had to sum up the events of Esther 1 and 2 in one word, the word would be dark. In these chapters, we see corruption and arrogance. We see moral compromise. We see questionable ethical decisions. We see good deeds go overlooked. There is darkness in these chapters. And then again, God is never mentioned, never talked about. He seems to be in the dark. Yet what we have in Esther 1 and 2 is God paving the way for what he is going to do to preserve his people. Even in these dark chapters, these bleak circumstances, here's the main thing I want us to see in Esther 1 and 2. God works in the dark. God works in the dark. God doesn't just use the holy. God doesn't just use the righteous. God does not just use the bright and shiny. God isn't working only when we can see his hand clear as day. God is still at work even when it seems that he is hiding in the dark. God is still at work even when it seems that our good works are going unnoticed. God works in the dark. His hand of providence can use even the darkest circumstances to fulfill his promises to his people. I want us to see three ways God can work in the dark from Esther 1 and 2 today. First of all, 
I want us to see that God can use corrupt powers. And we'll see this in chapter 1. God can use corrupt powers. We're going to read our story as we go today. And so let's start by reading Esther 1, verses 1 through 9. Follow along with me as I read. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women and the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, was the king of the Persian Empire. He was one of the most powerful men in the entire planet, and he wanted to make sure everyone knew it. We see in these verses that he spent 180 days showing off his greatness. And what that tells us, on the one hand, is that his wealth was so great, it took a long time to show it all. It also shows us his ego was so great, he could spend six months talking about himself. At the end of those 180 days, he throws a a week-long feast. And the king and all who were at the feast drank and drank and drank with no limitations. And that sets up what happens next. Look at verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. This drunk king 
wanted to parade his wife in front of his guests. He treated her like an object to show off for his own glory. But Queen Vashti refused. So the king burned with rage. Now follow along as I read the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsana, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will, sing, they will, they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So in his drunken rage, King Ahasuerus brought in his wise men to figure out what he needed to do about Vashti. These counselors appealed to the king's fragile ego. They warned that if she was not put in her place, she would set a bad example for all the women in the kingdom. Everything would fall apart. So the king decided to listen to them and to make an example out of Vashti. He took the power of the king of the Persian Empire, and he wielded his power to banish Vashti from his presence, to remove her royal status, and he made a rash decree to everyone in 107, 127 provinces across the globe so that women would honor their husbands unlike Vashti had done. What we have in this king is corrupt power. He is boastful in his power. He abuses his power. 
he wields his power in ways that impact the globe, and he does it on a whim over something petty. Such a volatile man with such massive power made for an extremely dangerous environment for all people, including the people of God. This corrupt king and his rash use of power is going to be what will threaten the very existence of the people of God. In chapter 3, we'll see a government official named Haman talk the king into making another rash decree to destroy and annihilate all the Jews. It will be because of this corrupt power that there is need for God to preserve his people. And yet, the amazing thing about this story is that it will also be this corrupt king and his rash use of power that God will use to preserve his people. And God is going to use this king without redeeming him. God doesn't use this king because he repents. Ahasuerus will not be like Nebuchadnezzar or Darius who were humbled and who praised the God of Israel. No, God is going to use the arrogance and rashness of King Ahasuerus. And he's going to use these things as instruments in his hand to accomplish his purposes and to preserve his people. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. That's exactly what we are going to see God do with this corrupt king. Centuries later, God would again use corrupt power to bring about the salvation of his people. The corrupt Jewish leaders would conspire to have Jesus killed by the hands of lawless Romans. Yet, as Peter says in Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God can use corrupt powers to accomplish his purposes of redemption for his people. So, in our day, when you see corrupt powers, what do you see? Do you see a threat to be afraid of? Do you see a rival to battle against? Or do you see an instrument in the hand of God that he can use to accomplish his will? You know, this is the first Sunday of 2024. We're coming into an election year. And 
as in most election years. The climate in our country is tense in anticipation of what's to come. So I wonder, in this election year, are you worried? Are you worried about the wrong people getting elected? Do you fear what might happen to our nation, to the world, to your 401k, to gas prices, to our culture, to our children? Well, take courage in this fact. No one in a courthouse or a governor's mansion or the White House is beyond being used as an instrument in the hand of the God who sits on the throne of heaven. No ruler is too crooked to be used by this God. No system is too broken to be used by this God. No power anywhere at any level, anywhere on earth, is so corrupt that it cannot be used by God to accomplish His purposes for His people and for His creation. God will fulfill His purposes. He will fulfill His promises. And He can even use what the enemy means for evil for His good will. You can trust the God who can use corrupt powers to preserve his people, to keep his promises, and to do good. Second, God can use compromised saints. God can use compromised saints. It's the second way that God works in the dark in these opening chapters of Esther. Let's read together Esther 2, verses 1 through 4. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. The king wanted, wanted to replace Vashti, he wanted to get a new queen. And so the king followed the advice that you would expect pagan young men to give the king. He decided to gather up all the young virgins in the kingdom and try them out until he found the one who pleased him enough to be the queen. That brings us to our title character. Look at verses 5 through 7. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem 
among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Decades before this moment, the Jews had been taken captive by the Babylonians. Eventually, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and the Persian king Cyrus let Jewish exiles go back to Jerusalem. However, many of the Jews, most of the Jews, didn't go back to the promised land. And these many Jews included Mordecai and his cousin Hadassah, or Esther, whom he raised as his own daughter. Now, in this moment, this beautiful exile, far from home, was about to get swept up into a, pagan's, a pagan king's self-gratifying schemes. Look at verses 8 through 11. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Esther was one of the many young women taken to the king's palace. Before long, Esther became the favorite of the eunuch who was in charge of the harem. But Esther had a secret. She was a Jew, and she did not reveal her nationality. This was apparently a way of life for Mordecai and those like him. And we'll see the danger that Mordecai faces when his nationality finally is revealed in the next chapter. So based on that, it seems that Mordecai was correct to believe it was just too risky for Jews to reveal their true identity. So let's read verses 12 through 14. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening... She would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. 
forget the squeaky clean Sunday school version of Esther. What we have here is the most powerful man in the world wielding his power to bring in the most beautiful women in the world night after night for his own carnal pleasure. Each woman was prepared for a year only to be used once and then discarded. This happened to woman after woman after woman until Esther's turn finally came. Let's read verses 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We aren't told what was going through Esther's mind in this situation. And we don't know exactly what happened that night in the royal palace. But I can tell you what for sure did not happen. This young Jewish girl didn't stand up to the king and say, I'm going to be faithful to the law of Yahweh no matter what the cost. No. This Jewish girl shared the bed of a pagan king. In fact, Esther managed to please the king so much more than the other women. She wasn't discarded like the others. She was made queen. In Esther, we have a compromised saint. Esther is not like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, uh, these heroes of the faith who defied pagan kings in order to stay faithful to Yahweh no matter what the cost. That's not Esther. She compromised. Though her family could have returned to Jerusalem, she's far away from the promised land. Though the Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations, she conceals her identity. And whether against her will or not, she's not living a life of blessedness in conformity to the law of God. In Esther, we have a compromised saint. And yet, this is who God chooses to use to preserve his people and to bring about their deliverance. 
And what we'll see is that God doesn't just work in spite of the ways in which she's compromised. God doesn't wait until all of this darkness is over and bring her into something squeaky clean to then use her. No, God will work through the very things that were most regrettable about Esther's situation to accomplish his purposes. And what I want us to see in this is that God preserves his people because of his faithfulness, not because of our faithfulness. God saves his people, not because we are law keepers, but because he is a promise-keeping God. Maybe you are feeling compromised, whether by something that you've done or something that's been done to you. Maybe you feel like you're the last person in the world that God would ever want to use. Maybe where you are today is far from where you thought you would be. Maybe you've done things you never thought you would do. Maybe your life looks nothing like what you thought it would look like. You might think that you have ruined your life or your life has been ruined beyond repair. You might hear that God can use you and think, well, you know, maybe God can do something through me, but I'll I'll never be able to do what I could have done. I'll always be stained. I'll always be tainted by what I've done. I'll always be second string on God's team because of what's happened to me. You need to know God is not finished with you yet. God delights to use compromised saints to accomplish his salvation purposes. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has set his promise-keeping, never-stopping, relentless love on you. And nothing in all of creation is able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The very things that you are most haunted by are not merely obstacles that God can work around. They are instruments that God can wield to accomplish good. Paul says in Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you are in Christ, God is determined to preserve you. He's determined to deliver you. And he will use all things, even the things that you wish you could forget and never remember. He will use all things for good. He will use all things to accomplish His purpose of making you like Jesus. You can say with David in Psalm 138, verse 8, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, your covenant-keeping love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. If God has set His steadfast love on you, He will never forsake you. There is no expiration date on God's love. He will not forsake the work of His hands. He will not stop short of His purpose for you. We serve a God who can use compromised saints. Third way that we see God work in the dark in these chapters is that God can use quiet faithfulness. God can use quiet faithfulness. Let's read one last passage, Esther 2, starting in verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The king's gate was more than just a doorway. It was a building where important civil matters were carried out. Mordecai apparently was a successful member of the Persian government. Mordecai overheard two of the king's servants plotting to assassinate the king. And so he told his adopted daughter Esther, who had just been made queen, and she brought this information to the king, and the issue was promptly dealt with. It was placed into the official record, but Mordecai was not recognized. Mordecai was not honored in any way. The deed was recorded, shut up, put on the shelf, and it was as if nothing ever happened. This act of faithfulness on the part of Mordecai was overlooked. Yet, what we'll see is this act of quiet faithfulness will eventually become the turning point of the entire story of Esther. 
the king will eventually be reminded about this act, and it will lead both to the exaltation of Mordecai and Esther and to the downfall of the enemies who want to annihilate the Jewish people. Let this be a reminder to us and an encouragement to us. Don't stop doing the right thing even when it seems like no one is noticing. You might quietly work faithfully in your job to the glory of God and get overlooked for that promotion. You may quietly labor in your home, instructing your kids in the way of the Lord, only to watch them rebel. You may quietly minister in your church, never getting recognized for your service. But that does not mean God is not using you. You may never see how God uses your quiet faithfulness, but God is still at work through you. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Even though you may be laboring in the dark of obscurity, God sees. So you can trust the God who can use even quiet faithfulness. God works in the dark. If you look at the world and you're discouraged by unrighteousness and injustice and the, the, the dangerous conditions that you see, remember that God can use corrupt power for his purposes. If you look at your own life and you're ashamed of the ways that you've fallen short of the glory of God, remember God can use compromised saints. And if you think that nothing you do is even noticed, let alone has any impact, remember that God can use quiet faithfulness. God works in the dark 